That's precisely the problem with faith. It means believing in something for which there isn't any evidence. You believe because you believe because you believe. On the contrary, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Are you sure nobody's explained that to you already? Thanks for tuning in to another All About Jack and C.S. Lewis podcast. My name is William O'Flaherty, and my main website is EssentialCSLewis.com. This is the fourth in a series of eight programs about C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. The author of that book is Peter S. Williams, and he will be joining me shortly to discuss Chapter 3 from that book. This chapter is called A Desire for Divinity, and it's in the form of a question. If you haven't already heard the previous shows, be sure to go to EssentialCSLewis.com to check out the podcast archives to listen to the other three. Last time, the topic was Chapter 2. That was entitled The Positively Blunt Sword of Scientism. You can also pick up the earlier shows directly at allaboutjack.podbean.com. That's spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Again, allaboutjack.podbean.com. With that out of the way, I need to welcome back my guest co-host, Peter Byram. I appreciate you helping me out again, Peter B. It's a pleasure. Now, Peter B. is a freelance video editor, among other things. In fact, we'll have him share again at the end of the program some of those things that he's done, as well as he works closely some, uh, helps out with the Christian evidence where they defend the Christian faith. Well, I'll let him now then welcome and introduce our guest. Certainly. Well, we're joined again today by Peter S. Williams, a Christian philosopher and apologist who is assistant uh, professor in communication and worldviews at Gimla Collins School of Journalism and Communication, part of NLA University in Norway. Peter also works with the UK Damaris Trust, leading philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. Peter has authored several books, including A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, and C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Peter S. Williams, welcome back. Thank you very much, guys. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the questions for this chapter, again called A Desire for Divinity. Well, as noted in the first podcast, this chapter has to do with the argument from desire, or something known as the AFD, we didn't uh, cover your summary of this argument, so I was hoping maybe you would start things off by doing that. Uh, the argument from desire goes from uh, noticing a particular experience um, that uh, particularly lots of romantic poets and, and writers have, have talked about, and maybe we'll talk a little about that later. Um, but a sort of a desire that, although it's triggered by our experience of various things in the world, a desire that wells up within us, that we can't find anything within the world to satisfy that desire. So it's a sort of uh, a desire that, that doesn't seem to have any worldly satisfaction and therefore um, appears to point somehow beyond the world, uh, to point us to something that transcends uh, what the world around us can offer in terms of satisfactions for uh, our various desires. And how do we um, best explain and understand um, this desire, its existence within us, uh, and whether we um, take it as actually pointing to something transcendent that can satisfy these desires and, and delving into some of the, the nature of some of those 
um, desires that we have that the world doesn't seem to be able to satisfy, um, but that particularly when you start thinking about it and elaborating this, it would seem that if there was going to be a satisfaction for, for some of our uh, sort of transcendent longings, as the poets say, there would have to be something like God uh, in order to satisfy them. Now, you did explain... Uh, a German word that Lewis uses in the initial in the initial program we talked about it to describe um, his desire. So um, could you remind us what that word is, partly to save me from trying to pronounce it again? Um, (laughs) um, So if you could just remind us what the word is and then briefly tell us, I think there are three main places that Lewis discusses that. Um, And in particular, the label that Peter Kreeft puts on these arguments. Sure. Okay. So the the word, and, and forgive my pronunciation, anyone who knows the German better, but I be, believe the word is Zeinsucht, um, often translated as a, a nostalgic uh, longing, um, this uh, sort of uh, longing for the transcendent. Um, the thing I'm speaking of, says Lewis, is not an experience. You've experienced only the want of it. Um, So it's an experience of wanting something that you haven't yet experienced uh, that is uh, triggered in you, um, often by um, aesthetic experiences, for example, in the world. um, But this desire for something more, for something greater or beyond uh, is kind of uh, rises up uh, within us. Lewis discusses this um, in a number of different places and and various different forms of the, the argument that might be spun off this. Uh, particularly in his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, uh, in the uh, the introduction to the uh, allegorical novel, The Pilgrim's Regress, uh, the first book that Lewis wrote as a Christian. And also uh, he discusses it uh, in uh, the chapter on hope uh, in mere Christianity. The American Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft, or, or Kreft, um, labels these uh, different ways of putting the argument from Lewis as the sort of the autobiographical description um, uh, in mere Christianity, the more um, pastoral, practical uh, description, and from the Pilgrim's Regress, the more logical form of the argument. Well, Peter S., let's go ahead and have you break down each of these three. Let's start off with what Lewis presents in Surprised by Joy. Okay, it's Surprised by Joy, the the autobiography. Lewis spends a long time describing his his childhood experiences with this uh, Zeinzucht desire. Uh, his struggle uh, throughout life to try and sort of understand it, uh, really in terms of a sort of um, what's the best explanation for this desire? Do you um, do you just write it off uh, as unfulfillable because you keep um, thinking, you know, maybe mistakenly, oh, maybe if I if I have this relationship or I achieve this goal or whatever, that will satisfy this longing. And then he, he says, I, I kept um, discovering that the things I thought would satisfy it won't satisfy it do you let that point you uh, beyond the world or or do you let that sort of turn you uh, cynical about the possibility of, of answering this desire and it, it's interesting that he he talks about it alongside parallel towards the end of surprised by joy with the the more standard sort of positive argument from religious experience saying that as as he became a christian he uh, began to see that his developing relationship with God started partially satisfying um, this desire uh, that he'd had all of his life. Um, It's a bit like finding out that if you're really thirsty, 
having a little sip of water. It doesn't quench your thirst, um, but you do discover, oh, water is what answers this desire. Uh, it doesn't quench it, but it's clearly the, the object uh, of my desire. Uh, and so Lewis has a sort of fairly rounded uh, discussion of Zeinsorgs in, in Surprised by Joy, or there he, he substitutes the much easier term joy uh, to explain this feeling because he says even this uh, unsatisfied desire within us is, is itself a joy to have. It's uh, You can um, get into the mind frame of pursuing the feeling of this lack uh, because it is such a, a momentous feeling in and of itself. Um, but again, he talks about being caught up into trying to pursue the feeling, uh, but then realising that instead of looking uh, to use a classic Lewis distinction, instead of looking at the experience, what he needed to do was look along the experience. Like instead of looking at a beam of light, uh, to uh, to use an analogy he uses in one of his other papers, uh, meditation in the tool shed, not looking at a beam of light, uh, but looking along it to see what the beam of light is actually uh, pointing to and coming from. Uh, and so sort of taking that joy experience at a phenomenological level, taking it at a face value level, you could say, um, trusting that experience. Um, and we could we could talk about in modern philosophical terms about uh, various sort of principles of credulity and when it's sensible to trust our experience uh, and to put the burden of, of uh, defending scepticism upon the sceptic, um, that if you trust this experience, it, it really does seem to point us towards the transcendent, valuable, uh, other uh, at least and that points us in a theistic direction and kind of uh, meets um, with the positive argument from religious experience in a sort of um, confirmatory manner now lewis um tells us about it in the pilgrim's regress is that right how, how does he do that yeah. so this is um the first novel that that, that lewis wrote on becoming a christian uh, an allegory and uh, changing the title there from from bunyan's famous the pilgrim's progress and he uh, calls uh, the Pilgrim's Regress, looking through the, the various philosophical uh, stages of his thinking on the, on the journey to becoming uh, a Christian there, and puts the form in, in what, as we say, Kreeft calls the more uh, logical form. Um, he says there about the uh, desire being like um, the, the, the famous chair around the, the round table of King Arthur um, that would kill anybody except the, the, the person who was meant to sit in this chair called the, the Siege Perilous. And uh, there's a, a famous uh, quote where he says, um, this uh, desire was in the soul as the Siege Perilous in Arthur's castle, the chair in which only one could sit. And if nature makes nothing in vain, the one who can sit on this chair must exist. And this idea of, of why would we have this desire for something that the natural world um, can't satisfy? How, do you, how would you explain that in, in naturalistic terms? Or could you have a better explanation in, in terms of actually, yeah, there, there being an object for that desire that, that does indeed transcend the world? Um, if, you, if you sort of argued like this and, and said, nature um makes no no type of natural human desire in vain but we humans do have a, a natural desire that would be in vain unless there's some object that actually transcends the natural world and uh, that answers this desire 
And if those two premises are true, then, of course, it follows that the, the object of this otherwise vain, uh, innate desire for the transcendent uh, must must exist and, and be obtainable um, in some some future mode of existence that we, we haven't obtained yet, but that we can uh, look towards and pursue. Finally, then, in, in what way does Lewis present this desire in mere Christianity? One of his most famous books, or definitely the most famous yeah. uh, apologetic. Yeah, here he, as Kreef is saying, is, is thinking more sort of pragmatically, as it were, pastorally or pragmatically. And, and Lewis um, describes the different ways in which people could respond to noticing this transcendent longing or these transcendent longings within us. And he says there are basically three different reactions that, that you could have. And he calls one uh, the fool's way. He says he, he, he puts the blame on the, the worldly things that fail to satisfy this desire. Um, you go through life um, thinking, um, if only he tried another woman or went on a more expensive holiday or whatever it is, then this time he really would catch that mysterious something that we're all after. And so uh, the fool keeps pursuing um, worldly goods to try and fill this um, un- uh, otherworldly longing. And he says, you know, well, that, that's foolish because repeated experience shows that it doesn't work. Um, the second way, he says, is a bit more sensible, what he calls the way of the, the disillusioned or sensible man. And this is this is the response, really, that Richard Dawkins uh, has to the argument. Dawkins um, writes about the idea that there's a, a God-shaped hole or gap in, in the real world and says, you know, maybe um, the best line would be to say um, we can fulfill this uh, with with worldly goods that we should sort of um, lower our expectations to instead of keeping this high expectation and being, uh, being dissatisfied that nothing in the world fulfills it. We should, we should simply sort of write off this apparently transcendent desire uh, and come to be satisfied uh, with things in the world, such as, you know, art and science and so on and sort of say, well, that's, that's enough. That's enough for us. Um, and this is what Lewis calls the way of the disillusioned, uh, sensible man. Uh, and then the third way, Lewis calls the, the Christian way, which is to uh, to take this desire seriously as pointing to some otherworldly satisfaction. And uh, then Lewis gives a positive argument for that as well, saying uh, famously about uh, creatures not being born with desires unless there's satisfaction for them. Uh, a baby feels hunger there is food. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world and that this desire will be satisfied uh, in another world. And so Lewis contrasts uh, these three different responses uh, to um, the Zeinzuch, to the joy, desire, but he does so in, in mere Christianity primarily at a sort of pragmatic level, although he does also give this sort of uh, inference, uh, inferential argument from saying, look, we can notice that most innate uh, inbuilt desires that we have do have satisfactions. Uh, and so uh, maybe that should lead us to trust that this one will have a satisfaction, even though it's not of this worldly satisfaction. 
Yes, and of course, the natural thing that I am wondering indeed is how do the new atheists respond to this kind of argument that Lewis presents? Uh, And you actually do wrap up the chapter with seven objections that can be found among the new atheists. But so do you reckon you could pick just one of them and uh, briefly just sort of show us yeah, how they respond with that one? Sure. Well, actually, I, I had to, to draw most of these seven objections from, from beyond the, the, the pool of the new atheism, um, because the new atheists don't really explicitly engage with this argument, which was so significant personally to Lewis. So I've mentioned how Richard Dawkins responds to something like it when he's talking about the, the, the Pascalian idea of there being a, a God-shaped hole or vacuum in the human heart, you know. There, uh, Peter Atkins and does pretty directly engage with this sort of general idea when um, he says just because people long for God, that's not good evidence for God. He says longing is not itself an adequate proof of the existence of what is longed for. Uh, And he's obviously right about that. Just because you have a longing for something doesn't mean that it exists. So um, just because someone has a longing to visit Narnia, for example, doesn't prove that Narnia is a real place that you could visit. Um, But of course, um, Lewis crucially distinguishes between uh, innate or natural desires, or as he says, desires that creatures are born with, uh, when he's talking about ducks wanting to swim and people wanting to eat and so on. He distinguishes between those innate natural desires, which he says do point to satisfactions, uh, and uh, other uh, desires that could uh, just be sort of... uh, um, inculcated into you by uh, advertisers or whatever. So you know, if I uh, if I have uh, a desire uh, to slake my thirst, that is a pretty good indication um, that I live in a world where drinkable liquid uh, exists. Uh, even though my desire to visit the land of Narnia is not a good indication that Narnia exists. Um, so um, Lewis, I think, uh, already. Uh, has the uh, equipment in place to to answer that very sort of superficial objection uh, from Peter Atkins. So he was before their time, but still ahead of them in that respect. (laughs) Indeed, yeah, as is often the Mm. case. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I remember seeing someone mention that Lewis, uh, that they were making up a word, essentially, pre-refuting arguments that are you know brought up yeah. today yeah <laughs> that, that that probably applies here well i'm sorry to say though that our that's all the time that we have for today's program on chapter three of the book again it's called c.s lewis versus the new atheist i want to encourage you to pick up a copy at your favorite bookseller if it's available there or wherever you shop online the chapter we've been discussing is a desire for divinity next time we'll explore chapter four that is in, is entitled The Argument from Reason. I'm William O'Flaherty, the producer and director of this All About Jack podcast. And before thanking my co-host and guest for being here today, I want to remind you to stop by Central C.S. Lewis to visit the podcast archives to hear the previous shows that we've done. And also you can check the show notes for links to any material that we've mentioned, as well as a link to get a copy of the book. And if you're listening to this uh, after all shows have been released, then you can visit uh, EssentialCSLewis.com or go to the uh, podcasting hosting site to catch them, where I've done also other single interviews and other series as well. That podcast hosting site is allaboutjack.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com.
Let me go ahead and thank uh, Peter B. Thanks for sharing co-hosting duties with me. Well, thank you. I always enjoy it. Well, let me have you go ahead and share briefly a little bit more about yourself. Um, well, uh, I mean, I think I've well, I've mentioned a, well, a couple of times before. I'm doing um, I, I do freelance video editing work and sort of media work, whether it's video graphics and that kind of thing. And I've been quite fortunate to be involved doing that to help out Christian apologetics quite a lot. Um, um, there have been a number of things that well, but there's one thing that actually Peter S. Williams and myself. Um, did uh, recently in July because Christian philosopher William Lane Craig came along uh, to the UK because he was involved in um, Unbelievable the Conference, which is uh, Premier Christian Radio's sort of annual apologetics conference. And he was speaking there. And um, so I've, I've had the, uh, the privilege of editing together the DVD uh, and audio material from the conference, uh, which is going to be on sale uh, from um, Premier Christian Radio. I'll, I'll take the opportunity to plug it. I might as well. It's all apologetics material. Um, if if people are interested in that, then I think by the time that this podcast is going out, it should be it should have become available. If anyone wants to check this out, it's about thirteen hours of apologetics material. It's at premierchristianradio.com/slash/unbelievable. And there's a link there to to order and have a look at the the DVD CD twin set there, and um, and it's very interesting actually. And um, the the subject of sort of what we've been covering, scientism, verificationism, and some of the outdated modes of the new atheist thinking, actually get a good bit of coverage in that conference as well. But when it comes to Peter S. Williams and myself, what we also did when William Lane Craig came along was the next day, after he spoke at the conference, uh, Peter S. Williams conducted a little interview with uh, William Lane Craig at Highfield Church. And then um, we all went on to do a a sort of an hour-long question-and-answer session with William Lane Craig afterwards with Highfield Church's own Reasonable Faith group. And so I was able to video Peter um, Williams doing that uh, interview with William Lane Craig. And Peter Williams uh, recorded the the audio of that Q&A. It was a very good session. And those should be coming onto YouTube, actually. So if you look at Reasonable Faith Org uh, YouTube channel, uh, you should be able to find um, that most recent material there with uh, Peter S. Williams conducting that interview and um, everybody having a, a good a good Q&A with William Lane Craig there. All right, and of course, in the, in the show notes at EssentialCSLewis.com or AllAboutJack.Podbean.com, we'll have direct links as well. Well, thanks to Peter S. Williams. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you very much, guys. It's a privilege. And um, just before we go, um, Peter S. Williams, you actually, you've got another book on the way that you're working on, I gather. Is that right? Yeah, well, I'm for the first time being involved in, in editing uh, a book. I'm co-editing a book with a well-known um, English C.S. Lewis scholar called Michael Ward. And we're editing together a book called C.S. Lewis in Poets' Corner, uh, which is pulling together uh, all of the uh, material that happened uh, in November 2013 uh, in England in celebration of uh, the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death, uh, including but not limited to the um, service at Westminster Abbey that unveiled a memorial to C.S. Lewis in Poets' Corner uh, in Westminster Abbey. And Westminster Institute put on a day conference the day before uh, with speakers like Alistair McGrath and Malcolm Geit. And um, indeed, Bill Craig and myself were on a, a panel discussion that happened there as well. 
Uh, you were there too, and um, uh, there are videos of that available on, on YouTube, I believe, now as well. So, um, um, but also there are conferences on Lewis uh, as a literary critic, and uh, and so on. Um, papers delivered at Oxford by Bill Craig and Walter Hooper. Um, so I'm doing a lot of pulling together. Uh, this material, uh, editing it with Michael to bring out a, a book with Whip from Stock publishers uh, in the next year or so, I hope, uh, called C.S. Lewis in Poets Corner. Well, I'm very glad that that's underway. Um, cause I, don't, I, I can remember you actually, you know, saying that you were planning on doing that and thinking mm. it was a very good idea to get that kind of material together from that, that sort of uh, commemoration uh, event. So, yeah, very glad that that's uh, in motion. Well, before we let you go, Peter S., I wonder if you wouldn't uh, mind giving us a preview of what we can uh, expect for next time. Sure. So next time, uh, the chapter is called The Argument from Reason. This is an argument that Lewis most famously makes uh, in his book uh, Miracles, an argument for the uh, the incoherence of a materialistic, uh, naturalistic worldview. He says uh, such a worldview can't accommodate the reality of human rationality. And this is a very uh, live and up-to-date, much-discussed form of argument in the literature today. So um, the chapter covers everything from um, C.S. Lewis's way of putting it and some of the the predecessors to Lewis's way of putting it, right up to debates today between, uh, say, the new atheist Daniel Dennett and the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga on the very same subject. All right, look forward to that. And this being show number four and that being show number five, we're going to have a brief break so if you're listening to this as it's being released you might have to wait an extra week if it's uh, way past september of 2014 then you're likely able to just go into the archives to give a listen to that so thanks everyone for listening and be sure to check out the other shows that i've done at essentialcslewis.com as well as other material that include a daily quote quiz and fact about c.s lewis 